Welcome to Americanish, where we untangle faith, love, culture, politics, identity, and everything in between. I'm Adela Kochav. And I am Maryam Waba, and we are the Daughters of Diaspora. The first time we sat down, I had no idea what a Coptic Christian was. Um, I still am learning. So I actually have a lot of questions I want to ask. Um, what exactly is Coptic Christianity? Very basic introduction to Coptic Christianity. Copts are the Christians of Egypt. Um, around 50 to 70 AD, um, St. Mark the Evangelist traveled to Alexandria and he set up the uh, Library of Alexandria and the Church of Alexandria and he kind of began um, converting people. And because the ancient Egyptians had these complex ideas of uh, forgiving God and an afterlife, they quickly uh, began to flock to him and to convert to Christianity. So at its basic, Copts are the indigenous Christians of Egypt, and they've been there since the ancient Egyptians. Um, Copt is actually a Greek word meaning Egyptian. Um, so again, every, I'll say it over and over again, probably a thousand times this episode, Copts are Egyptian Christians, and they are the indigenous people of Egypt. Around six to seven, uh, around the sixth or seventh century is when the Arab invasion kind of took um, the Arabia and began converting people to Islam, and, and uh, Egypt went from being a majority Christian country to a majority Muslim country. Um, so that's kind of basic Coptic history. Oh, you still with me? Yeah, still okay. with you. Okay. Now that's that's extremely interesting. Um, you know, since it was so close to the founding of Christianity geographically, so you know, down the grapevine, Christianity that's Coptic Christianity and Christianity that we see here in the U.S. are kind of different, kind of like a game of broken telephone. So, yeah. how is it different? I know, like for example, you celebrate Christmas on a different date. Yeah, um, I'm still very new to Western Christianity. Like, I'm still learning what Catholicism really is, what evangelism, what Protestantism is. Um, so I won't be able to answer your question in totality, but um, Coptic Christians are Orthodox. So think of Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. There's a lot of similarities there. Um, there's a very Oriental way. Uh, is that word taboo now? Can I say Oriental? I'm Ori I can say it. I think you're fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I can say Oriental. There's a very Oriental way to the way we do things and... Part of being orthodox is things. A lot of things don't change. So there's a lot of ancient um, traditions and and um, things and tricks that we do in the mass and the liturgy that have been done since the beginning of time. Oh wow! Yeah. So it, there's a large diaspora. There's a structure of sorts. Yeah. So, um, in the past. I, I want to say like few centuries, but to, to focus it a little bit in the past few decades, um, cops in Egypt have experienced a lot of turmoil because they're the largest Christian minority in the Arab world, but in Egypt particularly. And um, Arabism kind of didn't treat them so well. Arab nationalism didn't treat them so well. Um, so cops began to be to disperse as minorities do and, and they went to Canada, they went to the US, Australia, New Zealand, um, and there's large pockets of Coptic diaspora communities there. Uh, in New York, there's a church on Staten Island, there's two now. In Brooklyn, there's two. Queens, there's one. Um, I'm not sure about the Bronx, but I know there's one in Manhattan. Um, yeah, there, New York is, is a, a hub for Copts. That's really interesting. So question about just geography in general, you know, um, being so close to Nazareth uh, mm. was leaving Egypt, you know, a difficult religious decision for a lot of cops. Is there a lot of like historical ties to the land or is it more a religion that you carry within you? 
That's a really interesting question. Um, there is something about being a Copt that is so deep-rooted in being Egyptian. We are, like, the most Egyptian. Funny thing, I saw a tweet this morning that said... Uh, Egyptians are the Dominicans of the Arab world. Got it. And I don't know why, but that just stuck with me. But back to your question, um, just because we're loud and stuff. Um, there, there's a very deep tie to Egypt, and there's a very deep tie to Jerusalem, although for the longest time, cops weren't allowed to go to Jerusalem and, and do their pilgrimage for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess leaving Egypt for my parents was a difficult decision and that they were saying goodbye to the only home that they've known um, ancestrally, we don't, according to my parents, I hope they're right, there's not been a non-Egyptian in the family. It's It's been Egypt through and through. Um, so that was really difficult. And I, I think that goes back to our, our last conversation about derooting. That was tough. Like for my parents, just getting up and in early 20s with three young girls and just deciding to go to this unexplained, unexplored, unexplained country with no connections no family and just winging it um i hope i answered your question does that yeah yeah it answered my question perfectly yeah um but you know talking about influences you know like um we had a very similar experience being you know syrian lebanese um you know we they each have their very intense passionate identity of i am syrian <laughs> or i am lebanese are you Halabi? are you shami and we have all these complicated yeah. identities within and all the disagreement but at the same time a uh, very strong sense of pride in the identity that they come from and then also this sense of derooting but at the same time you see the way that everything blends so like for example um i'm a syrian lebanese mexican jew and that means a couple of things so for example if you take something like passover um you know you can't eat bread or you know anything like that but sephardic jews could eat kidney oat which is grains mm. right which would include um corn um being a mexican sephardic jew oh. means that we can have tortillas so for me passover was about having mexican food for a week straight and then i moved to the u.s where i'm also among syrian jews who will also eat rice and corn and all the things that i eat during passover you know according to jewish law and I'm like, oh, yeah, so excited for the enchiladas. And they were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and that's when I realized that, you know, a lot of the things that I grew up with aren't strictly Jewish, aren't strictly Syrian, aren't strictly Mexican. They were just kind of like a blend that created the traditions I have. Yeah. So, you know, what influence does Egyptian culture or Islam even have on Coptic Christianity? And have you felt any switches or changes or new blends ever since you moved to the U.S.? Mm, that's really interesting. There, there's a large Islamic influence on Coptic culture, Coptic identity, holidays. Um, and that's just because we've lived as neighbors for the past couple centuries. Um, my, where the town, the village where my, I grew up until the age of seven um, was predominantly Muslim. And we were one of the few Coptic families in my dad's village. And um, so we'd celebrate Ramadan and we'd eat the food sometimes because my father and my grandparents worked with Muslims, we'd fast because you're not going to eat while your coworker is not eating and you're not going to have a sip of water while, you know, just basic decent humanity. Um, so I remember celebrating Ramadan and we had this plate my grandma used to have. And um, during Ramadan, it was just go back and forth. Like we'd send it over with a plate of something and they'd send it over with a plate of something. And at some point we forgot whose plate it was and it just became a tradition to pass back the plate and back and forth between the houses. Um, 
so there's things like that and and um the islamic community that i'm exposed to in egypt and it changes from village to village and and like cairo copts are very different than alexandria copts and in their tendencies um but my dad's village all the muslims loved saint mary for some reason and there's a 15-day fast um coptic fasting is a vegan pescatarian diet so you kind of give up all um animal products so there's a 15-day fast in july where we fast for saint mary and the Muslims would fast with us. And we'd fast for Ramadan. It was this beautiful exchange of just love and affection and appreciating each other. And I, I want more of that. Yeah, wow, that's, that's really interesting. Especially, like, you know, we were both here in New York. You went to Fordham, I went to NYU. Yeah. Um, you know, I know I felt excited when I saw a menorah around Christmas time, yeah. especially like around New York. And it'd be like, ah, that one's us that's me <laughs> so do you guys have like any like symbolism or anything like that where when you see it in new york you recognize it and it's kind of like a okay like that's mm, home kind of um i mentioned this in the last episode but ridgewood queens is a big like just that place there's a lot of it feels like you're in cairo a little bit and there's little egypt of course and astoria that definitely feels like you're in Cairo. Sometimes I, mm-hmm. there's no English signs. It's all in Arabic. If and you're ever going to buy tobacco for hookah, not yeah. that I'm promoting smoking, but Little Cairo is a place to go. And really good food. They have really amazing good. food in the store. You just walk into any place. Um, so that's as much as I can think of. Of course, the churches, when I pass them, that is a very obvious and big reminder of, of who I am and, and home. Um, but I can't really think of any landmarks or anything like that. Okay, that makes sense. Oh, even speaking of the churches, um, I've had this question for a long time. What language are your services in? And do you have a sacred text that you read? If it's the Bible, is it in English? Is it in Arabic? To directly answer your question, our services are in Coptic, English, and Arabic. Wow. Um, So in church, we have this huge, massive uh, projection screen, and they'll have three columns, and one will be Coptic, English, and Arabic. Obviously, in Egypt, they only do Arabic and Coptic. Um, but that's something I'm very proud of that we do our, our service in Arabic and Coptic and now English. Now I want to go back to something we touched on last episode. Yeah. Last episode, you mentioned you have a Coptic tattoo Yeah. and I did not know that cops had a tattoo, especially so young. You said around nine, 10 years old, you already had it. So yeah. what is behind the Coptic tattoo? What age do people get it? What does it mean? Okay. Um, so the Coptic tattoo is very interesting and the history is disputed, and I'm not an expert, so Coptic Twitter, please don't come for me. Um, so the Coptic tattoo, again, this is the history that I know, and there's varying stories to it. But again, when the Arabs invaded um, and started forcibly and non-forcibly converting uh, Egyptians to Islam, there had to be a way to identify Christians um, because you had to pay a tax because you were a minority living in Islamic lands. Um, and you became a demi, which is essentially a second-class citizen in an Islamic land. Um, that was us, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of, under the Ottoman Empire, that many, many uh, ethnicities were demis. Um, so the story that I know is because they had to identify the cops, there had to be an identifying thing. So monks would wear the big crosses. Eventually, they needed to identify everybody. So they started tattooing young children with these Coptic crosses. Um, over the years cops have kind of adapted that and took it and and turned it into something negative into something very positive so cops born in egypt and and i believe it it really depends because now in the diaspora things change as i'm sure as it does within the jewish Jewish community um people do different things or in different when they are in different places 
uh, young children are tattooed. So I believe I was like nine months old when I got this. Wow. So we give it to our children to kind of identify you as cops. And that's why it's a little faded. I don't know if the camera picks it up, but um, as you grow, obviously it was very small. And as you grow, your skin stretches, so it becomes faint. faint. Um, so that's the story of the Coptic tattoo. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. And I can't wait for my kids to have it, even though I don't live in Egypt anymore. That's amazing. I didn't know that yeah. at all. I, I love how it's something that you carry with you, um, you know, and from the point that you're very young. Yeah. So I really love that. It sounds like, you know, being Coptic, it's something you really carry with you since you're little. And it's something you're so proud of and so proud to pass on to your children. And, you know, the Syrian community doesn't have an equivalent, but we do mm -hmm. have that sense of pride and that sense of tradition and passing things on. Um, but, you know, I, I am a little bit curious about, you know, as people who are so proud of who we are in our culture and our religion, um, suddenly we show up to this modern world as these modern women and things are a little bit different. Um, so, you know, being a woman in the Syrian community, I did feel at times that I was limited and I didn't have the same opportunities that, you know, the males did and there were these certain expectations. Um, you know, a, a good example is growing up, my brother and I, um, he told my mom that my school, which is a lovely Jewish day school, but doesn't have the highest academic um, standard, especially at the time. Now, again, it's changed, which is great. Uh, my brother told my mom that he wanted to go to a good school, so he wanted to go to a prep school. And he went to a prep school, high school, where mm -hmm. they wore ties and the girls wore the skirts. And it was very cool. And they had a campus and they had Ooh. a mess hall where they ate. Um, like Hogwarts. Like Hogwarts. <laughs> and when I told my mom around that age that I wanted to go to that school too, my mom said, no, you're going to go to Hillel and it's a Jewish school and you're going to learn Judaic studies half a day where you're separate from the boys and then you're going to learn general studies and they have AP classes too and you'll do fine. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, well, why can he, but I can't. And that was like the first time I really saw a big difference. Um, but end of the day, you know, my brother ended up going to NYU from his fancy prep school. And I also went to NYU from mine non-fancy yeshiva day school. <laughs> um, and, you know, that Where was, was kind it? Of, um, it was in Deal, New Jersey. Oh, okay. um, it's right there. Everyone goes. It's really tiny school. Everyone knows each other. Um, and that's where both my sisters, one went. She's at Princeton. The other one is a junior now. Um, but the conversation around women in the Syrian community is changing, um, especially in, you know, telling them that it's okay, not only okay, but it's good to want to pursue a career. And it's not necessarily that you have to have an education, but, you know, if your passion is baking, you can monetize that. If your passion is yoga, you can monetize that. And you have all these smaller home businesses starting up yeah. with all these women that have dedicated their lives to the community and to building it up, but have also now dedicated it to pursuing their passions and not feeling like they're limited. Mm. Um, and, you know, what, what were some of the influences in your life like? Did you have similar experiences? Did you ever feel limited as a woman, as a Coptic woman, or, you know, anything like that? Thank you for sharing that. And that's a really good question. Um, the interesting thing is I don't know which part of my identity limits me. And that's another layer of exploring. Like, is it my Copticness? Is it my Arabness? Is it the Islamic influence on my parents? Is it being a minority in a country where I'm no longer a minority, or at least not viewed as one? Um, growing up was weird. I was the oldest of three, so kind of what I got to do is what I set the precedent for my two younger sisters. So I always tried to push the envelope, but never too much. Um, 
I would only ask questions that I know I was getting a yes to. Um, so my mom never went to college or anything like that. In fact, she was her, her high school diploma or the equivalent of in Egypt. She had been engaged to my dad for a few months and he picked up the diploma and she was married a few days after. Um, so that hadn't really been a route. And, uh, my background in Egypt, is my, my mom's side is Falahin, which is really peasants, but farmers. Um, and my dad's side are, are trade. He's a carpenter. Um, so growing up, there was really no avenue for women in the family. You kind of just like got married. I have cousins who I grew up with that were married a few years back and they kind of like ask about me like, oh, what about you? Like, what are you up to? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Go to school. Um, but there's no precedent. I'm, I'm the first in my family to go to college. I think I had an aunt way back when that like tried to go to college. Um, even the men also, which, which goes back to my yeah. question, uh, to, to my point of like, I don't know what's limiting us. Why aren't we going to college? But sometimes you can't afford to be brave. Sometimes you can't afford to, uh, like break out of the pack. And I think that's the case for a lot of minority communities, um, if you look at your parents and you see them struggling to feed seven, eight kids and in Egypt, how, how are you going to ask them to be, to let you go to school? That's not a small expense. And, and not only are you asking for money from them to go to school, but you're taking away the income that you are able to provide if you didn't go to school. Um, so it's really complex. And, and moving to the U.S. complicates that in a very different way because now you have all these opportunities, all these doors open to you, but you're the support system around you isn't so supportive of it because it's something so new to them and they're trying to protect you in a way, but they're limiting you in another. Um, feeling stifled is maybe the best way to explain it and having to break through those barriers and having to explain. Going through the college process as, an, as a first-generation mm -hmm. immigrant yeah. is scary. Yeah. Like any doing any paperwork is scary because you, you don't know what you're doing. You have no guidance. Your parents don't know what you're doing. And you just kind of have to navigate it all by yourself. Being on campus for the first time was so intimidating. I remember the first day of orientation, all these kids had their parents with them. And they were, you know, it, it was a moment of them passing something on to their children. And I showed up alone and I felt really out of place. Like I wasn't really supposed to be there. And you have to push through all these feelings mm -hmm because you know whatever's at the end is worth it. You know, for a long time, I thought that the community was limiting women, but if you told some of my friends, like, you have to go to college now and take final exams, they'd be like, why are you punishing me? <laughs> and it's not a path that they want to take, and I think that that's, that's a very American idea, the idea that everyone has to go to college and get an education and then work um, in a specific field, like, that's very American. Mm. It's not necessarily everyone's path. Um, you know, especially when it comes to like, you know, trade schools or like professions, like that you, not everyone needs education mm. in a formal setting because not everyone's great at it and not everyone wants to pursue that. So I think that that's also something that, um, I see creeping in with a lot of, not only girls, but a lot of kids where they feel ashamed if, um, you know, they don't get a certain SAT score or they can't get into a certain school and it's not even something that they want but they feel that's something that they have to do. And college is a huge, forget financial commitment, it's also four years of your life, and now people feeling obligated that they have to do it because otherwise they're doing something wrong. And that's something that really troubles me. Yeah. Um, but to get back on track, um, I always found that advocating for women and you know this idea of traditional feminism is showing how much you can do with equal opportunity. But right now there's all these different competing ideas, all these com different 
understandings of what a woman should do or should be when it comes from our tradition and when it comes to now the modern Western view of a woman. And the question for me is, how do we get back to a place where women can do what they want to do, what they're good at, what they want to achieve in their life? do, Do you feel anything similar? And I think for me personally, it boils down to choice. Feminism for me is having the choice to do what I want to do, what I need to do, even if it's the wrong choice. Mm -hmm. I just can't have you decide for me. I want to talk about another similarity that we have is we have two younger sisters of the same ages. Which Uh, is creepy. Which is creepy. Yeah. It's creepy. We both have a 19-year-old and a 16-year-old. Yeah. Um, So, you know, being the oldest of three girls, being the oldest sister, is there, you know, any specific pressure? I know that you said that, you know, you tried pushing the envelope, but not too much. But, you know, what kind of world do you see them growing up with? You know, what kind of things do you hope that they're learning as Coptic women in New York? Hmm. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I wish they would skip the part of their journey where they don't like being a Copt. But I come back to that's part of the learning curve, that you have to hate it to love it. You have to go through that part where you reject a lot of your identity to see the beauty in it. Um... I do want them to rebel. I want them to rebel more than I did because, like I said, I pushed the envelope, but not too much. I, I was also lucky enough, mm-hmm. and and they might not agree on this, in that I kind of set up some things for them. Like, I was able to fight it hard enough to go to college, fight hard enough to eventually dorm and, and live outside the house without being married. And now that I'm out of college, live on my own. Like, that's not something that we do in our community, both diaspora and in Egypt. And to... Um, that was not easy (laughs) because those conversations with my parents were tough and it was a lot of clash and kind of like, what do I want to keep? What do I value and hold dear to my heart? And what do I not want to keep without upsetting my parents, Mm -hmm. without seeing my tears in my mom's eyes and so forth? And um, I feel like I gave them a good foundation for that. Um, I would love to hear their thoughts about it like do you think I did something good for you do you think I didn't um but now I feel like they were they're at where I would have loved to be at Mm um am I tooting my horn too much no I need to I think think you're making a lot of sense and I think it's a lot of like older child pressure but being the oldest female child with female younger sisters yeah that is it, it is a pressure and it is something that is groundbreaking and breaking glass ceiling after glass ceiling after glass ceiling yeah. everything's a fight like yeah. for example i wanted to do a summer program at nyu mm-hmm. when i was in high school and i did yeah but my mom didn't let me dorm so i was mm. taking a train every day at 7 a.m to new york and i was 16 years old 17 years old and you know about six years later my younger sister comes in and she wants to do a summer program at columbia and i was like great she'll dorm and i'm yep. like oh will she will she now yeah will she dorm? Can I, I'll, I think i have you beat i so my parents uh live on staten island and i went to fordham in the city 59th street columbus circle and um my dad was against anywhere like living outside the house and so for the first two years of my college experience i commuted every day from staten island to New York, Manhattan, mm-hmm. about two hours each way to get to class. And you know, you're naive in the first year of college, you don't really know what classes to take, and I took an 8.30 one day, oh, no. 8.30 a.m. class, so I would leave the house like pitch black, 4.30 a.m. to make it to class on time, 
to get there, like be settled and, and prepped. And by the third year, I was like mentally gone, deteriorated. I was so out of whack from the commuting and that pressure it puts on you. And you're also not able to make friends when you commute because there's these social stigmas in college and you're seeing the people after class. And I just couldn't have, I didn't have the time to hang out after class was done. Um, so I'd have to go home and I couldn't make friends and I couldn't, I didn't have a social life cause I was just going to class and coming to and from. And then my sister went to college. She moved to freaking Albany. No, no discussion about it. She just picked the farthest school she could go to. Um, so I'd feel your pain there. I agree. Well, before we close, um, is there any last thing that you want to say about your experiences, about, you know, being a copt, about being a woman, about, mm -hmm. you know, all the experiences that you had, if you could sum it up in, you know, the feeling it gives you knowing everything that you've overcome, what would that word be? Um, hmm. If you're a minority and I, I won't limit this to just cops, rebel. Do what you need to do. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs>